I'm with you. I think the gradual approach is a great one. I compare it to the sort of vigilance we need to have as parents when our children are toddlers. Like that 18-month-old, you have to constantly be watching. They're trying to kill themselves all the time. Lining up on things. They're getting into stuff. You just feel like you're in a constant state of hypervigilance. Just like, I got to be monitoring everything all the time. That's kind of the entry point to me of social media for kids. So I love that. Welcome to Family Tech Talk, the show that helps you be the tech expert of your home. From interviews with lifestyle experts on how they use technology to tech tips and the latest news. No matter what your skill level is with Family Tech Talk, you can be the person all your friends and family go to for tech advice. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello and welcome to Family Tech, where you get to be the tech expert of your own home. So today we are talking about social media and mental health, but not just for the kids, because I talk about this a lot with regard to teens and things like that, but it's also important for parents to understand too. So my guest today is Rachel Hack. I'm so excited. Did I, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Well, you actually pronounced Hawk, but I pronounced Hawk, and that's very common mispronunciation because the spelling looks like hack. So yeah. yeah. I'm a geek, so I'm all about hackers and things. So that's definitely what I read. What I see, I will Rachel answer Huck. it. That's completely fine. <laughs> nice. My maiden name was always mispronounced too. It's like it looks like whirly, but it was pronounced whirl. It was a big thing. But I love your Instagram account. I've learned so much from it. Um, you. you know, I'm not a therapist, and so you are a licensed ma- marriage and family therapist. So can you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and what you got going on? Yeah. So as you said, I'm a marriage and family therapist. I'm a mom to five kiddos. I, a lot of what I do on social media has to do with relationships and topics related to mental health. It's a huge passion of mine. I was a once upon a time interior design student, and then I pivoted and switched because I realized I was much more interested in the spaces within within ourselves than externally, even though I think all of that kind of um, maps into each other. And I'm still to this day a fan of design, but I really cared more about the elements that create beautiful minds and beautiful hearts. So I switched into psychology and have loved it. Absolutely love it. That's awesome. Maybe I'll invite you over to my house. Give me some help because I know nothing about interior design. My house is just a mishmash of just stuff. <laughs> so I don't well, even know. I'm looking at your background there. It looks pretty cute to oh, me. I really like the way all the artwork there. Yeah, it's all like very Disney and pop culture-y. That's, yeah, that's my thing. It. Yeah. So what we were really talking about initially over DMs is this U.S. Surgeon General advisory on social media and teen mental health. Yeah, calling it an urgent health issue. Do you agree with that statement? And kind of what are you seeing with regards to mental health and, and teens and social media? I do agree with it as an urgent, an urgent matter. I don't believe in being an alarmist about things, but I do think ringing the alarm about issues that could that are affecting our youth in specific ways is helpful. So I was glad to see the conversation brought forth at this level. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so like, have you seen that in like your own practice? Obviously don't give us any re- like real world examples, but are you seeing the decline or kind of that crisis appearing in your practice? I have seen the rise overall in teen depression, anxiety. And yes, there is always a link when I assess and figure out like, how much social media is there and how much phone use is there, that there is that relationship that the evidence points to, that there are strong correlations. And if not, there'd be been the case now for pretty direct causal links between the amount of time spent on social media and mental health effects. And particularly for those girls and boys, 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 Agents like 11 to 15 is that window that I really think of as particularly critical. Well, that's super interesting. And because especially because a lot of social media platforms are not allowed before 13. But as we've seen, there are 10, 11, 12 year olds on these platforms. So it's interesting that you say that like with that age range. 
Yeah. Well, and as much as I'd like to believe that these kinds of controls that the tech companies could do as far as age limits, they really aren't that thorough. I mean, kids can easily override them and figure out a way to set up their accounts. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're calling specific awareness to the problems here. Another thing that I've noticed too, because I wondered this myself, is this rapid rise in anxiety and depression more attributable to the fact that more people seek help now? So we're seeing it as a fight when really it's that mental health has been destigmatized. Therefore, when people are feeling bad, they're going, they're getting help for it. And so that's showing up in the data. But, and, and part of me thought, I think that's what might be at play here. But I was more troubled by the fact that we're actually seeing suicide rates, our visits due to suicide attempts, self-harm, those have increased tremendously. And it is very much linked to the beginning and the advent of social networking systems, social media and smartphones. Kids. Yeah. See that no. Well, a uh, year and then it's just like <laughs> the, the rates just rise for especially for girls. Yeah, that's so interesting that you said that, because first of all, my parents divorced when I was like 12 or 13. I never had any therapy or anything like that. And I definitely could have used it. I've, I've definitely been through therapy now, and it's been super, super helpful just in, in my life. And so I, both my kids have therapists and, but I think that's true. Like my parents never thought that was an important thing back in the day. And now like more people are saying, okay, this is important to have somebody that they can go and talk to about things that like, you know, I, as a parent, am not equipped to help them through. And so I I think that destigmatization has definitely led to that rise, but you're, you're also right that there's other rates to look at that it's also important to look at. Correct. Absolutely. And, and your example is a perfect one yeah. that at a time when you probably could have, it would have been useful to have some additional support. Right. It's like, those are the data points that are showing up now that we're glad to see, right? That means people right. are seeking treatment. So it can be a little bit misleading. And yet I, I think it's a bigger picture than that. I think it's much bigger than just the destigmatization. Can we talk today? You're doing fantastic. Transition of therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Because there was a study too that that like the tw- the tweet went super viral, and I got very angry about this tweet because it was basically saying that smartphones themselves were the decline of mental health of kids. Because you were talking about that rate when like social media came on, and and I'm like. There's so much data that needs to be included in that, that you can't just say smartphones are the decline, like, because people can use a smartphone and use it for an hour a day and not have any mental health issues. And then there's somebody who is on their phone all night long and not getting enough sleep and all the other things, and they can have mental health issues. So I like that you are taking into account how much time they're spending and all of that is so important to look at. Absolutely. Yes. Especially those are the time spent, the type of content consumed, and then other risk factors involved at large in the environment and in the family system and everything like that can all play a part in this. Yeah. So it's not just like bad, bad, take it away. Like you got to look at the bigger picture. I agree. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So are there platforms like social media platforms that you think are worse than others for teens? Have you done any of that kind of research? It's interesting because I I thought about that one and because the platforms shift and change over time, right? I'm sure you probably remember the days where it was MySpace, right? Right. (laughs) And then kind of congregated in Facebook. And now I don't know a teen anywhere that's on Facebook now, right? Oh, no. They kind of migrate to their platforms. And I have this theory that once too many adults join that platform, they're like, this isn't cool anymore. We're leaving. Then they go somewhere So sometimes I tell parents, hey, if you want a certain platform to die, join it. Get involved. (laughs) Comment. Like everything. And they're like, I'm leaving. Instagram's old now. Like (laughs) my teenagers will say, right? So it seems to me that the real, I don't know, what's your opinion on this? You're the tech expert, but Snapchat is really right now where the teens are congregating the most. Yeah, for sure. 
so I compare it is Snapchat and TikTok. I'm sorry, Snapchat and TikTok are I think the for sure they're yeah. spending the most amount of time on. Also, be real, is the yeah. other one. But I don't know. I have depending on which teen I'm talking to. I have five girls and they're all different ages. So right, <laughs> and they all like different platforms. You know, nobody's on be real. I'm like really <laughs> no. But I think what I don't like, what really concerns me is the game, the gamification or the game theory. Yes. They kind of tie in to really hack into our neural pathways that form those addictive behaviors. Those are the ones that concern me. So it's like the streak, the streaks on Snapchat. Snapchat streaks. Well, what is going to happen if they break their streak? It's so the end of the world. It is the end of the world. And so they'll... There's that it creates that compulsion to have to go. And if I don't do it, I'm going to lose my streak. So I don't like that about those yeah. platforms. So Snapchat is one of them that I'm like, I don't, I don't like the streak thing. I don't like how you feel like you, I don't like the way things disappear at the conversations. So yeah, I think Snapchat's the one that I'm often more concerned about. Although each platform has its concerns for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I agree. Snapchat, like that's the one. I don't really do hard, fast, like age limits, except for 13 for any social media platform. But I usually recommend Snapchat around 16 just because of the like monitoring capabilities, like the non-existent monitoring capabilities and and streaks. And you are right. Like these kids are basing like how good their relationship is by how long their streak is. Yes. And I think that is so hard to like, okay, I'm better friends with this person because my streak is longer. And then this person, like I just met. And so my streak is like this long. And so if I'm going to break that streak, it means my relationship isn't as good or strong as because I can't prove it. Yes. I've even seen it with adults. They are in a panic over breaking streaks. So that's something there that I, I think it's problematic. I also think the the social anxiety now that's introduced through the reading of messages. What was I left undelivered? Right, I opened it. I mean, yeah. there's a whole social etiquette system there with yeah. these with teenagers. Of oh, she left me on red for three yeah. hours. Over, you're like, oh, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? So learning all the nuances there, I do think that it primes us for higher levels of social anxiety overall. And so that's yeah. a concern, especially for these developing teens when identity formation and social integration and peer relationships are the most influential on their social or their emotional well-being often, even more yeah. so than parent life and home life. Right. And I, I've said this before, too. These days, they have like quantifiable data of like who's popular and who's not. When I was a kid, like we kind of knew who the popular kids were. But like now they can get on Instagram and be like, oh, well, like 300 people liked her last photo and only like five people liked my last photo. So I'm not as popular as her. So like actual quantifiable data, yes. like determine your self-worth. That's I, I could imagine very damaging. It is very damaging. It causes many, lots of problems. And it really heightens that social comparison factor that is already prevalent enough at this age that I think it heightens it to levels that can feel unmanageable for our teens. Yeah, for sure. It, it, those are the specific changes that I really would like. And I'm grateful that with the U.S. Surgeon General's warning on this, we need to have a collective conversation and really put the pressure on the tech companies to create these platforms. And I know that it's it's counter to their goals, right? Uh, and actually, I understand that. But I yeah. do think if if there's any hope for ethics here, that removing things like the likes feature, removing mm -hmm. those things that create that gamification of like, oh, I'm trying to measure myself and my worth by my likes, by my comments and my streaks, whatever it might be. Right. So who knows if that'll happen, but yeah, <laughs> it would be nice if we were more mindful of that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I mean, we can have a whole conversation about government and involvement and trying to like pressure the tech companies to do that. Like, like you said, I would really hope that they would just take it upon themselves to yeah. 
make some changes. I hate any company being forced to change like their entire platform because of government regulation. But like, hey, if you do see something that like you can improve and like help for for some of your target demographic, I think that would be beneficial to everybody involved. Yeah. And if we can form corporations and companies around value, like, can we do that? Is that yeah. what and that that actually could be appealing to your consumer base, that there are people who would participate and purchase based on these values being at the forefront. And I understand that this is like a very macro level change. I don't even right. work really like that as a therapist. I work on the yeah. individual and the family systems level. And I think there's so much we can do there. Yeah. But yet, I sometimes feel like without those macro level shifts, it does feel like for a parent... And a therapist, like, we're these two little frontline spiders against an absolute legion yeah. of an army that's against us. So it's like you can be as right. strong as you possibly can. And when you're just up against numbers like that, it feels hopeless. Yeah. So that's why I'm glad to see. I never really tell people, you should get your parenting philosophy from government entities and their, rec- their guidelines. Yeah. I don't really recommend that. But I'm happy to see when there could be a coalition that forms based on this collective concern about our youth. Yeah. And that's what I really like about the Surgeon General. Like, I was ready to just hate this whole advisory because of, like, how I feel about government involvement in, in tech companies and stuff. And I read it and I loved it. Like, everything about it. Because he really talked about the positives and negatives and in a really great way. And then real world action items, what tech companies can do, what parents can do, what kids yes. can do at the end there. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. So mm-hmm. yeah. And so like really focusing if the tech companies can like look at that and say, okay, hey, these are the things we can do to help. And the parents go in there and say, okay, these are the things we can do to help. And the teens go in and these are the things I can do. I think everything could improve. I agree. I think we actually would have a chance at really confronting this epidemic on the macro level. And and of course, the individual level is where I think we have the most power for ourselves. But I like that both are in conjunction. So I was happy to see this and I'm with you 100%. I really like their actionable items for every entity from policymaking to the tech companies to the parents to the individual. Yeah, for sure. So what are some things that we can talk to our kids about or help them to do or avoid some of these negative effects of social media? Yeah. So I am a big fan of getting buy-in from your kids and your team. And in order to do that, I think raising awareness by asking good questions, that you have to be willing as a parent, not just to be teaching, teaching, lecturing. I'm really good at that. I <laughs> should I can easily move into like, let me present the data and not like right now. This is why I'm parenting this way. And this is why the rules are this way. And this is why I'm right. Yeah. Um, I've found that it's much more useful to say and to ask questions. So to my older girls to say, what's your, what is your honest opinion? Do you think social media is good or bad or somewhere in between? What, what do you think is good about it? Yeah. What do you think is bad about it? What do you notice? How do you notice you feel when you use it? Do you notice that you're feeling good or bad if you were to check in with yourself? Do you notice that that's related to the amount of time? If you spent an hour on it, do you feel worse? If it's 20 minutes, you don't feel so bad. Do you notice that sometimes you're on there and there are good things, but then there's something that you kind of take a hit there emotionally. You see something that hurts. You see a friend doing this or the ex-boyfriend doing that or the party you weren't invited to or whatever it is. Did, was that worth it? Did you feel like it was worth it that day that it, that day it hurt worse to be on social media? And just to have those conversations with them, I think it helps to raise their internal awareness of how is this affecting me? And then we can start to actually formulate goals. Like, well, what's your goal here? What's your intention behind having social media? What do you think would be more helpful so that you feel less of the negative effects that you've identified here? And yeah. feel more of what makes you feel good. So I'm a huge fan of questions and being really willing to listen and reflect back to them what they're saying. Because I know that teens want to be happy too. Right. Parents don't just want our teens to be happy. Our teens want to be happy. Our teens want to be healthy. Our teens want to grow and they want to self-express and they want to have autonomy. 
and they want to be competent and they want to be relatable. All of these things that it's like we're on the same team here. And it's so funny because it can feel like we become adversaries when we approach the conversation in a specific way. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you're giving really specific questions that you can ask because sometimes as parents, we can just be like, well, how was your day? Like a really broad question that doesn't get to the meat. Uh, they're like, oh, it's fine. Like, what did you do in school today? Like, I did my homework. Like, mm-hmm. they're not going to divulge like all of the information. You're like, oh, you know, what interaction with one of your friends was good today or something like that, where you're getting really specific oh. mm-hmm. um, and you'll get a lot better responses when you get so specific like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I learned this once. I wish I could say so I could give credit to whoever had this idea because it's not mine. But I loved the analogy that it's often like getting hit with nurse gun darts throughout the day, like social media interactions or stuff like that. It can be stuff that's not debilitating, but you're taking yeah. it throughout the day and hit me 200 times with a nerf gun. And my body is going to start to really respond to that and feel I'm going to start feeling crappy from that. So I like that analogy for the kids. I'm like, yeah. did you take any Nerf darts today? Like, nice. what were the Nerf darts? What are the little annoying things? Like, what do you notice about that on social media? Because yeah. if you say, oh, what's the negative effect of social media? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. But right. if it's, what are the little things that just kind of bug you or you notice? Have you noticed that you get bothered or that you feel kind of bad about yourself or that you look at somebody and you think, for thought. I wish I was more like this. I wish I could be more like that and just have those conversations around it. Yeah. Oh man. I, I love that. And the analogy of the Nerf darts, that's so great. I mean, I know you didn't make it up, but we'll, we'll just say you did. Actually, Jonathan Haidt, now that I think of it, he's a social psychologist, which I would love to plug anyways for parents. Okay. His Substack, well, any of his books, he's a fantastic researcher and he is really specializes in the area of social networking systems and how they have impacted us culturally. He wrote the book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I love. Uh, I actually give into school principals and administrators as Christmas gifts. And like, here, along with your little box of chocolates, hear the book. Please read it. Please read it. And just the title alone sounds fantastic. It's Yeah, it's really good. And it talks, yeah, I could go on a whole rant about that. But he has a sunstack called After Babel. And it's he used the metaphor from, from the Bible of the Tower of Babel and kind of how people throughout trying to create progress and build this tower to the heaven really ended up in a state where nobody could understand each other anymore. And so he uses that as a metaphor to kind of liken to what social networking systems and the advent of social media have kind of done in that we've gotten to this place where we're all siloed off into specific echo chambers. Our polarization is higher than ever. We don't understand each other more than ever. Misinformation, disinformation is more rampant than ever, all in this quest towards tech- technological progress. So he does so much fantastic research and summarizes research related to teens and mental health. So his After Babel substack is where he's kind of giving it in live time what he's learned as he puts together a book that he's going to have coming out next year called Kids in Space. And that will be all about what we've learned over the past decade with kids in social media. But right now you can go and just read the articles that he has related to teens and mental health. So I've taken some of those articles and I've just read them with my girls. Yeah. I've said, what do you think of this? Like, can Let's just spend some time and read a paragraph or read two paragraphs. And do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think of this? And that's, again, all a part of that raising awareness for them, like that I want them to be more aware of their processes. And the more aware they are of themselves in it, the more equipped they are to make better choices. And the more buy-in they have when I do make those structural parenting decisions of we don't do media at this time of the day, or you have time limits. If you're going to have a Snapchat app, you are going to have a limit every day. And and we, I don't have to explain my reasons so much when I've already brought them along on this on this journey of asking questions and kind of getting their buy-in by giving them information, asking them what they think about it. Then oftentimes we find more alignment with each other than you 
than you often would if you just tell a teenager what the rule is without ever kind of explaining the reason behind it. Yeah. And I love the other thing that you said about that is when you take the articles and you sit down with your kids and you go over them together too, even if it's just a couple paragraphs. I mean, as I have done that with tech news, something happens, there's a sextortion or somebody did some self-harm or things like that on the news. And I bring that to my kids, not in a like, hey, look at the scary thing way, but more of a, hey, this is what happened. What could you do to maybe not have that happen to you? Or how would you avoid this situation? Just making sure they understand these are the things that can happen. You don't have to be scared of it because you can, you have tools to mitigate that, but, but just helping them be aware of like, this is why we have restrictions and rules in place. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you're having the conversation. And I don't think that, I I don't encourage conversation with parents to just say, just keep talking about things and don't worry, just talk to your kids. I understand for a lot of parents, it's like, okay, but like, there's only so much talking before I need to come up with like, what's the plan here? Right. And it's like, you'll find that the plan emerges, like you will form more consensus than you realize often with your team. Teens are brilliant, brilliant people. And they're like these hilarious little hybrids of children too. So it's like between the... They're not completely developed frontal lobe, right? They yeah. have the impulsivity and the stuff that sometimes you're like, what were you thinking? Where did that come? We were just having this like really deep conversation. And now it's like we've pivoted to this, like, who are you? Or, <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, you're, you're 15. That's right. You're 15. Because um, yeah. sometimes you can hold your own. And I'm thinking I'm talking to a full-blown adult here. And I think they're great at little like hypocrisy detectors. I just think teens are brilliant. And so to remember, remember that and really embrace that in your child, that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be so top down. And as you guys collaborate together, you will form more consensus than you realize. And in the areas where you don't find that consensus and you just have to be the parent and you need to insert that necessary structure and boundaries around things to keep them safe, they'll trust you more. They will trust it often, even when they disagree with it or are annoyed by it or roll their eyes at it. Right. Yeah. And you said it's 15, which totally leads into the next question we got on Instagram, which is my daughter's turning 15. She is in ninth grade until what age is recommended parental controls? And I'll take a quick stab at this because it's one thing that I recommend is gradually letting go. So as they show that they can manage themselves appropriately, then I let go of this and then I let go of that. So by the time they're 17, 18, I'm completely hands off and like I'm not doing anything. So just the kind of gradual letting go of like, okay, first I'm not going to monitor as much and then I'm not going to manage stuff as much. And hopefully by the time they're 17, 18, like so my daughter who's a senior, I have no parental controls on her stuff. But she came to me the other day. I mean, this wasn't the other day. It was like a year ago. But she's like, hey, mom, so I'm spending too much time on Instagram. I'm not getting my homework done. Can you just tell me that I'm grounded for a week and I will like disable it on my phone? And and I'm like, do you need me to like reinstall parental controls and like and disable it for you? She's like, no, 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 I I can disable it through digital well-being. I'll be fine. And so she disabled it for a week. And and I'm like, okay, you're grounded. Like, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. I'm with you. I think the gradual approach is a great one. I compare it to the sort of vigilance we need to have as parents when our children are toddlers. Like that 18-month-old, you have to constantly be watching. They're trying to kill themselves all the time. Lining up on things. They're getting into stuff. You just feel like you're in a constant state of hypervigilance. Just like, I got to be monitoring everything all the time. That's kind of the entry point to me of social media for kids. So I love that. If they're 14 or 13, I really like to wait till 14. I'm like, just try to push it as long as you can, even though I understand those kids, they come hard at you with their, this is all I want. I'll do anything. You don't have to buy me anything for Christmas. Every chore all day, every day for the rest of my life. I'll never ask for anything if you'll just give me chat. So I understand the way. It's like you've heard this before. A few times. I'm still in it. I'm still in it right now. I've got a, I've got a 12 year old. He's like going on 15. I think it's just because she has older sisters. So we're already in the like, yeah. we're working through it. But yeah. it, 
when you introduce it to them, you want to have the level of vigilance that you would with a toddler, which means you need to have absolutely tight parental controls. It, I, I don't think a lot of parents sometimes realize that it's not an all or nothing thing with social media, that if you just give them, it's like giving them the keys to the car and then they just go driving off. Thankfully, your, your phone provider, there's so many things that you can use to create good controls. So we have Apple phones. And so just through the Apple family plan, we set up limits on every single app that they're allowed to have with time, the amount of time they can have on it. So of course, the younger they are, the much smaller window of time that's allowed. They can request more time, which is one of the most annoying parts of it. Because <laughs> request time. I don't know if you feel. Oh, that. yeah. No, that's like a daily. Once per minute, I'm going to lose my mind. Daily. Yes. I'm at work. And then if I'm like out and the request came in, I'm like doing something. Then I get the text. Hey, more time. Can I have more time? Can I yeah. have more time? And <laughs> you're just like. Or their excuses for why they need more time. I just need just one thing. And so that's exhausting. But that's the level of vigilance again that kind of mimics what we do with our toddlers. I'm always in it. I'm always kind of involved and monitoring and they're asking me for more time and I'm double checking and I'm making sure that they haven't gone around my parental controls because the, these kids are smart. They quickly grab your phone when you're not looking and they approve their own notification yeah. at the time. And they quickly do it for all day. Or they, if they're, these kids are so smart, they'll get in there and then they'll approve certain apps for all the time and you won't realize it. So you have to have the vigilance to go back and check it, make sure nothing's been changed. If one of those stinkers come in and change it, you gotta go back and address what they did and say, if this happens, we're losing the phone altogether. You know, yeah. you don't get your phone for a week since you went on and approved it for yourself. Right. It is a privilege and it's a privilege that will grow in relationship to how well you manage it. So we can give you more and more leeway the more trust we build over time. This is like a credit system here. You build your credit score with us and then be free to do yeah. your thing. So yes, my my almost 18 year old, no, you know what? It's funny that we do have time limits on her and you're almost making me rethink it because she's an inc incredibly responsible girl and I think it's just more of an out of habit that we just kind of have the whole limit thing for the whole family going on right but I wouldn't trust her at this point to be able to self-regulate and manage her own schedule her own stuff right because she's doing great with it so yeah exactly yeah yeah I, I so hopefully that answered your question on Instagram um, question I'm sorry no you totally did like it, it was the same thing like we're just letting go and when they're like 13, 14 is when you got to be like toddler mode. And I loved that analogy. I think that's like, it's something we can really understand because I mean, I remember when you had to chase them around because yeah, they were constantly trying to hurt themselves. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, stop climbing up the stairs. Stop climbing on the bookshelf. Yeah. And you got to like have that vigilance and to really take that into like social media, I it was a perfect example. So I, I'm going to use that for like the rest of my life. So thank you for that. Great. Because yeah, you open up the the conversations of any 13 and 14-year-old 14 14 little girls on social media completely unmonitored or without time. It feels absolutely reckless and horrible. <laughs> Devolving into. It's like, so yeah, they definitely need much, much more involvement and constraint at those younger years as they slowly learn and mature and their minds develop and I do find there's something really special about that age 16 with girls. There's there's just shifts with them from 16 to 18 yeah. that I feel like they develop some introspection and some groundedness in their identity that it's almost like I agree more often with a, my 16-year-old's analysis of things than maybe my 13-year-old my is still thinking I'm crazy. My 16-year-old come around and is like, yeah, that makes sense. I don't even want to do that anymore because I can see how that affected me if if I, we didn't have those controls. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. So at what point do you think it would be necessary to get a licensed therapist like yourself involved to help a kid who's dealing with some of these negative impacts? And I'm going to say, like I said, both my kids already have therapists too. But it's not something that like I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the end of the world. Like I just found a lot of use in therapy for myself. And I'm like, sometimes these are things I can't help with because I don't have those skills. So 
at what point, and I would kind of almost say all points, <laughs> where you would want to get a licensed therapist involved. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like the older models of therapy always assumed that something has to be very, very wrong to go to therapy. I like seeing therapy now as more of a tool of prevention often, um, yeah. creating support. And I think in that way, too, it's not like you have to have some sort of like deeply rooted shame-filled problem to seek out therapy. It can also just be an additional support for you in your parenting journey, in your relationship with your kids, if you find a trusted person that you like to consult with from time to time on whatever it is your family's going through. I say that it's a good time to seek out help when you feel stuck. When you're just constantly feeling the stuckness of if it's you and your child are just constantly at battle, at war over the social media thing. If you feel stuck and you don't know how to help them, that something is, is bothering them, something is wrong, and you aren't sure what to do, I like to just use that stuckness as the principle because sometimes that's when that third-party support can kind of get in there with their lens and help us to map out, like, what's going on here? What are the considerations we need to take? What's the context? And from that often emerges the solution and the improvement that we're looking for. Yeah, for sure. And so my kids have therapists, but they're not, they don't have like a regular appointment. We just like, hey, when you feel like you need some help, some additional help, let's make an appointment. So my daughter, she was so excited. We got her a cockatiel and the cockatiel only lived about a year. And when the cockatiel died, like she was devastated. And I'm like, should yeah. we schedule an appointment with your therapist? And she's like, oh, yes, I definitely like need somebody to talk to about this. And it's not that I wasn't able to talk to her. I just don't know how to help her through something like that. Mm -hmm. And so to get that additional help, I think is really beneficial for the kids when, again, you're stuck. I'm like, this is not something that I know how to help you handle. Yes. Yes. And I like therapy to be, I like there to be goals in therapy. So I like people to know why they're here and what would be successful, what they would consider successful. Yeah. And that you don't have to indefinitely forever be in therapy. Right. And you can have a therapist that you see periodically for years, not at a specific interval. Because yeah. you can determine that for now, it makes sense with what you have going on to have weekly sessions to right. work on these specific goals. And then once those things are checked, it's like you're good to go. You're fine. You don't yeah. need to be in therapy. And then you can return at any point. I always tell my people, my door is always open. I could not see you for four years and then come on back and we'll pick up on what you need to work on or what, what's presenting for you now. And it's really, really special too, because the relationship over time, these are some of my most sacred relationships or with my, with my clients, my patients. And so it's, it's an interesting thing as a therapist that you're like, I guess when I don't see you, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Right. But, you know, the occasional check-in with something, I'm always, my heart's a little happy, even though sometimes I know it means there's been a disruption, there's been something go going on. But yeah, so I love that your daughters have that and that you guys can check in as needed. And so I recommend that for parents. When you feel stuck, find someone you trust, and that's what's most important. Do you actually trust the therapist? Do you have an alliance with them? Do you align with them and their way of doing things? If you don't, if you don't feel that, find another therapist. Don't just assume because they have the credentials or the license that they know more than you. I am a huge believer in the intentional in the in the intentionality of parents, and an intentional parent deserves to be trusted as the authority in their lives here. So if if you sense that you're being over overridden as a parent all the time in therapy, and it's different than a challenge that you trust if that makes sense yeah find another therapist yeah and I totally agree we went through a couple with my son before we found the one that like that he sees now because it like again I just didn't feel great about the relationship and I didn't but the the one that I I, I trust now is the one he's got now and so it it's great when he comes across an issue okay do you need do you need me to schedule an appointment with your therapist yeah. and and uh, I, I think that really helps him to know it's not just mom and dad. Like I have more support in other places too. Yeah. Yeah. So w we'll go back to this advisory was more about specifically youth. 
I'd mm-hmm. like to chat more about the effects you're seeing social media have on adults like and parents because this is something that mm-hmm. I mean I feel like is still out there but we're so focused on like its effects on teens right now that we're kind of ignoring uh, everything that that is happening with adults. Yeah. Oh, with adults I think that okay, I think polarization is more is a bigger problem than ever and I think it's driven by social media. Yeah. Uh, Twitter the the Facebook, the comments, the all the time. I think that we we were not evolved to be in social networks in terms <laughs> as large as what we're participating in, right? Yeah. And we were not even meant to know every single opinion of every single one of our neighbors all the time on everything. That's a lot to hold. So I think that it's driven us in many ways into those echo chambers where we end up surrounding ourselves only with like-minded, like-opinioned people. And it has created an inability for us to effectively communicate. And I think we see that all the way up at the highest level, even in our civic lives and government. I'm a huge fan of the organization Braver Angels. That's another thing I'll plug here. Yeah. Um, they, It's actually founded by a marriage and family therapist who has been a mentor to me and has been in the field for decades. And he said, I've spent my life working to prevent the breakdown of families and couples. And now I feel like I'm working to prevent the breakdown of our civic, our, our civic society because of the way we're all behaving towards each other all the time and the ways that we're participating in social media. So I think that has had an enormous impact on us culturally and is something to be mindful of. And that we also have the power to shift on that. Organizations like Braver Angels that are calling awareness to this and encouraging more more interactions from across the political or religious or philosophical aisles from each other to start participating again in relationship with each other and meaningful relationship and meaningful dialogue is something that I think while social media exacerbated this problem, I also think we have we can seek out the solutions on social media as well, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And I love that. I had the a conversation, my interview with Brittany from the American Moms Instagram account. And she said, like, and we were talking about this echo chamber. You mentioned the echo chamber. And the with the social media algorithms, we can get stuck in this echo chamber of ideas that are just like ours. Mm -hmm. And when we're stuck in that, we just keep, it's the confirmation bias where I'm like, I'm, I'm seeing these people confirm what I already believe, but it's just because I'm stuck in this echo chamber. And so I love it. It feels so good. Like that that confirmation, that familiarity bias that we have, it feels so good to be around people who are telling us that we're thinking about things the right way and that we're the good ones and all that kind of stuff. I get it. I'm just as susceptible as anyone else to just like, oh my gosh, I've siloed myself off right into the world because I don't like feeling uncomfortable. It sucks to feel deeply uncomfortable and annoyed. And yet I think it helps us to develop the level of distress tolerance that we need. I think of distress tolerance as our ability to sit with and hold uncomfortable emotions and still stay engaged in our lives. And it's kind of like a rubber band to me that it can grow and we can stretch it. And so there are rubber bands this big and if you pull them too tight, they just snap. But then there's rubber bands that are really large and they can hold a lot and they can hold a lot of tension. I think with us, we can actually grow those for ourselves internally. And we do it by actually confronting the things that make us uncomfortable. And doing it in a way without snapping. Can I hold this tension? Can I hold this tension without the snapping effect? And that's a practice, just like a muscle that we stretch and eventually we get more flexible with. And I almost see like the more we silo off into echo chambers, the more rigid we become, the less flexible we are, and the more prone to snapping we are. And yet it feels so good to be in our little echo chambers. I get it. I get why we do that. But yeah. More, again, awareness, just like we raise awareness with our teenagers about the effects of social media. We need that as adults. The real non-judgmental awareness of how this actually is affecting us and affecting our processes. Yeah. There's there's one other area that I have theory on that's somewhat linked to this, but also that I think family estrangements, family estrangement and relational cutoffs are more prevalent than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the justification for those cutoffs. 
being the the list is many of why this is, this person isn't good for my mental health. Being around this isn't good for my mental health. And I hear mental health used, and sometimes I think it's used synonymously with this is making me uncomfortable. Right. So being uncomfortable does and discomfort does not mean that you're not mentally healthy. You can feel uncomfortable and still be very mentally healthy. And that can actually be a good thing in the same way as when we go into the gym and voluntarily create discomfort for ourselves in order to build stronger muscles and more limber joints and flexibility and functionality. The same goes for the discomfort we feel in relationship to other people socially. And that, invo- that includes social networking systems. So when I, I see the justification used, the mental health used as a justification for why I'm no longer talking to that person anymore. And that includes my auntie. I don't talk to her anymore. We don't even go to Thanksgiving because we disagreed on social media about the way. And I just think that there's, that's alarmingly to me becoming normalized, justified, mm-hmm. not really being challenged, kind of like, good for you, protect your mental health, set those boundaries. And yes, there's a place for boundaries. Absolutely. And yes, certain people are deeply damaging to our mental health. There are abusive relationships. So I'm not discrediting those. I just think we have broadened the definition so much that it can include everything. Everything that makes us uncomfortable is bad for our mental health. Right. And bad for our mental health, we shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be participating with that person or talking anymore. And then we accidentally end up again in that echo chamber where we've become extremely rigid and inflexible. And I don't think it's good for us, nor do I think it's good collectively. I love everything you just said. Oh, rant over. <laughs> no, it's so great. Cause, and that's one thing I've talked about too. And, and this goes back to our kids. It just seems like so many kids these days are unable to deal with being uncomfortable. And so you say something to them and that like just puts them in a tailspin because like you said, they're just so rigid in what their what their ideas are and what they're going through that they can't handle anything else that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And you're so right. Like we need to get out of ourselves and and deal with that discomfort. And then I loved that you related it to the gym. I, I love working out. It's like one of my favorite things. But it's the same thing. Like, yeah, my muscles are sore. But I know that and it wasn't fun. And it was it wasn't fun. The workout sucked. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. And I like was breathing heavy and and it was so hard. But that's what builds the body I want or the muscles that I want. And th- that was a perfect example. I you're just amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's it's psychologically, right? That the muscles that we want in order to form good relationships, which I think is the actual, we have evidence to suggest this or that shows this clearly, but I think intuitively we know it too, that it's what Esther Perel says, the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. And so if we're going to actually have good relationships and strong relationships, it involves those psychological muscles being developed the ones that can actually hold the tension without snapping. And if we just try the route of never be uncomfortable, everything that makes me uncomfortable should be avoided. And because I'm conflating discomfort with my mental health, then we create a fragility that's just not true about us. We are stronger than that. Families are stronger than that. Individuals are stronger than that. I'm much more optimistic about our capabilities there. And that's something that back to that book, The Coddling of the American Mind, addresses yeah. all of that. That's that awesome. In our efforts to create these cozy, perfect worlds for our children, we accidentally ignore the unintended consequences of what that safe cocoon can be like for them and that they don't develop certain muscles that they're going to need to actually deal with life at life's level. And so we could expect that if this is the way we're doing it and this is the way we're parenting, we're creating more fragile people, which will increase, their, that, which could explain part of why there's such a spike in anxiety, why there's such a spike in depression. Uh, so it's counterintuitive that we're actually going to say, go more towards the challenge, go more towards the discomfort, lean in more towards the people you disagree with, 
and get very clear on the difference between abuse and people who just I don't agree with and right. and stop calling people you disagree with abusive. It's just disagreement. And let's be more clear about our language here. Let's be more clear about, of course, we're not excusing abuse. But somebody saying something that you disagree with is not abuse and, and making those distinctions as we go. So, yeah. Yeah, that's actually something. So Officer Gomez, he's a school resource officer in Idaho that has a platform talking about digital parenting and everything. He said the same thing, like a lot of the things that are coming to him as bullying is social disagreement. And so what he's like, he tries to educate them on, hey, this is just a disagreement. Like they're not bullying you. And he said once like they understand that the difference between bullying and social disagreement, he's like true bullying cases. I maybe have like one a year tops. Most of it is actually social disagreement. Yeah, that's so and so important to be able to distinguish because, of course, we want to have a hard zero tolerance policy on bullying, of course. Right. But what does bullying mean if everything is bullying? Right. Yeah. We actually lose it, the potency and the meaning behind the definition. And like we need abuse to mean abuse. Right. So that we can really flag it and come down hard with it and, and set up extremely firm boundaries with it. But when we're conflating abuse with irritating comments or something that we just disagree with, then it starts to lose its power there. Yeah. I, yeah, I worry about that. And I do think that there's been some effect of social media creating more of this. And so, yeah, for adults to just, again, raise that non-judgmental awareness in yourself. Right. Of like, how is this affecting me? How is yeah. possibly contributed? Is is it possible that there's certain areas where I've conflated discomfort with or, or assume that discomfort is a bad thing that I have to avoid instead of lean in towards in order to gain some resilience and yeah. some grit? Yeah, grit. Oh, there's a great talk that somebody did. Like it's like a TED talk on grit. And I recommend I'll, I'll try and find that the YouTube link and, and put it in the description. But it is fantastic. It's been, I've seen it and I love oh, okay. it. And yes. I love the word ever since. I'm like, that's so good. Yeah. 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 That's a great one. And I know we don't have a ton more time. And I think we could really spend an, a, whole, a whole interview on this topic. So maybe we'll like tease that for another time. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah. yeah. But I wanted to just maybe briefly touch on addiction because what kind of signs should we watch for if like us or a member of the family is becoming to technology, addicted to technology or social media or even pornography? And then what can we do to kind of help them through that? Or if it's ourselves, what are kind of some brief steps? <laughs> like I said, maybe we can dig yeah. into this better. But but yeah, if you've got a really high level overview. Yeah. So uh, social media, the, the addictive quality to that, it's kind of like what we call cross-sense addiction. So it's different than a substance addiction, right? But it it mimics the same. We have a compulsion to do something. We are unsuccessful in our attempts to cut back. We tend to be more of it to experience the same effect, or we keep doing it despite repeated negative consequences. I think that's the big one for me. Are we participating in something despite its repetitive negative consequences? And do have we do we sense we lock control over that? So I'll just be complete self-disclosure. There's been plenty of times I've been on social media and just been like, that's alarming that I just spent this amount of time. I had no intention of spending this time on it today. Yeah. I had lots of other things I needed to get done. I have now neglected to do X, Y, or Z because I was piddling away my time, scrolling reels, laughing, whatever, <laughs> something I was doing. And I'm kind of like taken aback. I told myself I wasn't going to do this today. Yeah. And so I'm like, I told myself and then I did it. And I keep doing that. So do I need to address this on, on a more serious level? And so when, if you think that you or a family member is dealing with that, again, the open conversation first about the process as you see it unfolding. What are the negative consequences? Can we find them? Like what, what's actually being missed here because I'm spending this time on social media? Have I, can I honestly self-reflect? On have I tried to cut back and I'm having difficulty doing that? Do I need more support there? So do I need to set up some structural things? Do I need to actually delete the app? Right. Be off of it for a month. Have an accountability partner to check in with on that, whether it's my 
spouse or my therapist that, hey, I've noticed it's gotten out of control. I'm going to go off TikTok for a month and check in with you. And would you just be kind of, would you ask me about this again? Because I'm kind of nervous about stopping. And I think withdrawal can be a thing too. You'll actually notice that it's like, I'm antsy. I want to check my phone a lot. I feel weird that I can't get on social media. So I think addiction is a real thing with social media and that if we're, if we can be honest with ourselves or if our partners can be honest with what they're observing in us or our children are being honest with what they're observing in us, but we can take that in, then we can address the fact that yes, this can absolutely be an addiction and it's completely treatable and we can get ahead of it. It's okay. But we don't have to deny that it's actually, an, it, it can very much be an addictive process. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And like I said, let's just tease that and like plan for maybe a couple months from now doing a whole session on, on addiction, because I think we could really talk about that for a long time. Yeah, for sure. Yes. But recently you've been, we'll wrap it up with this. You've been talking on your Instagram account about family meetings. Do you think it would be helpful in those, in these family meetings to discuss what's going on on social media, how these are making us feel and like kind of how should we manage these family meetings with regards to social media? Yes. Okay. So the family meeting, obviously I didn't invent the concept of the family meeting, but I, you totally it, did, Rachel. It's fine. <laughs> if people go to my Instagram, I do have a specific format of the way that I recommend the ritual of family meeting be set up and conducted. And I'm really drawing from principles and positive psychology and the communication skills that we have to work on with couples and couple therapy and family therapy to kind of create this once a week ritual that's one hour in time that really hit specific marks that I think gives you the most bang for your buck in kind of developing intentionality and purpose as a family. So I think absolutely conversations about social media could be a part of the conversation. There's a section of the family meeting that we devote to like enrichment and devotional time. So that would be a great time to read the art research article on social media and have the conversation. When you're going over what's not working in your family, if you notice that it's specifically related to social media use and time, that's when we problem solve and come up with what are our guidelines for the week of our zones, our, our screen free time, of our, our time limits. What do we think is the right amount of time? And so, yes, it's absolutely something that you can integrate into family meetings and, and should be. Yeah. Awesome. All right, we have one more question on Instagram and that is what is your Instagram handle? Because they want to oh, be able to follow yes. you. Okay, thanks. My Instagram handle is Rachel Hawk. And so it's spelled R-A-C-H-E-L-H-A-A-C-K. My last name looks like H-A-C-K. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Ha>. Yes. <laughs> but pronounced Hawk. So definitely go follow Rachel, a wealth of knowledge for all sorts of Stuff. And not just about like technology and social media, you've got tons of stuff on how to improve your relationship with your spouse and, and your whole family. So definitely go check her out on social media. She has a great Instagram account. So thank you. This is so fun. Thanks for letting me just go off. Yeah. No, it was perfect. Like I said, I'm definitely going to have you back for sure. Is there anything else that we missed or any topics that you wanted to just quickly say say something about with regards to well, I I think we covered it I really love what you do I'm going to be actually sharing your stuff because you cover all that tech side that I'm not good with but if I can just encourage people to live their lives with intentionality and to create intentional families I think that is the that is the foundational I think structure that really creates healthy societies and a healthy world so I'm all totally about it I agree yeah. And actually, that just reminds me, I, I'm not trying to plug myself, but I'm going to plug myself. I will be releasing an ebook soon, just the 10-day tech reset challenge. And really, it's all about being intentional about your tech use. Because when you're saying being intentional, because that's what I really encourage is technology is great. I love it. It's amazing. But you need to be intentional about what you're doing. And then you're going to be able to use technology for what it's great about and not have it use you. So I love um, that. Yes. Yeah. Intentionality. That's gonna be, yeah. That's gonna be the word of the day. Intentionality. Oh great. I love that. Yes. <laughs> so thank you again so much, Rachel. Again, go follow her. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks. Bye everybody. Thank you for listening to Family Tech Talk. Please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. 
feel free to reach out to me on social media. I am Family Tech on all platforms and respond to all of my DMs. You can also become one of my techs by joining the Facebook group, our subreddit, or the Discord server. Just search any platform for Family Tech and you'll be sure to find the community.